Hi folks, Daniel Mullins here. Thank you so much for supporting Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Before we start with today's episode, I want to invite you to join Ty and myself for a very special event coming up in Raleigh, North Carolina during the 2019 World of Bluegrass hosted by the International Bluegrass Music Association. On Friday, September the 27th, we will be recording a live podcast with special guest Alan Mills. Alan Mills is a beloved member of the bluegrass community, founding member of the legendary bluegrass band The Lost and Found, and a founding member of the International Bluegrass Music Association. I know we'll have a ton of fun, we'll laugh, and we'll learn from a real bluegrass legend. And you are invited to join us 10.30 a.m. at the Raleigh Convention Center in Raleigh, North Carolina on Friday, September the 27th. We'll be at the workshop stage and we hope that you'll join us for a live podcast recording as we sit down with bluegrass legend Alan Mills, a 2019 recipient of IBMA's Distinguished Achievement Award. That's Friday, September the 27th, 10.30 a.m. Join us for a live podcast recording. And now on to the next episode of Walls of Time. Thank you. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Hoosier Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Field interviews with the best in bluegrass. From his time of growing up as a competition banjo player in the Southwest, Arizona native Mike Bubb has been a bluegrass staple from his time with the Weary Hearts to the Del McCurry Band and even today, as he is one of the most sought-after bass players in Nashville. In episode one of this two-part conversation with Mike and host Daniel Mullins, we hear about Mike's upbringing, the culture of bluegrass competitions, playing bluegrass internationally, and much more. Let's join Mike and Daniel backstage at the Society of the Preservation of Bluegrass Music in America's annual event in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, Mr. Bub, uh, you were telling me about um, the Weary Hearts. How, how did that band get started? Well, we were basically um, we were born out of a band contest in a way. We. Uh, um, Ron Block and, and another fellow named Eric Uglum and myself used to travel around and play in picking contests and and kind of made our living doing that. And we would back each other up and compete in different contests. And we'd travel out to California. I, I lived in Arizona. They lived in California. So we would go to Utah, New Mexico, sometimes Texas, you know, that far to go and compete. And uh, but we entered a band contest in Arizona with a guy named Butch Baldessari on mandolin, and that became sort of the 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 point that we said, "Hey, we can have this. This is our band. We've we've got it together." So kind of, that's how it started, just from being picking friends from playing at festivals, you know, in the in the tri-state area of the Southwest, and uh, so it was kind of born out of that. And then uh, you know, just started getting serious about getting bookings and trying to make it work. So we took it from there, you know. And we were speaking uh, before we started recording about 
how uh, the Weary Hearts and Dustin Miller and the Union Station all kind of were, were growing up and playing a lot yeah, of the we, same contest circuits yep. at the same time. Yeah, we were all sort of uh, contemporaries of each other, you know, and and uh, friends. And we actually shared, um, uh, I think, a trade table or, or a trade show table at uh, IBMA one year with Dusty Miller. And uh, we were always, you know, we did some recording projects together um, with some of the different, you know, various combinations of those, all those people. Just recently listening to Butch Baldessari's album that he made right when he moved to Nashville called Old Town. And uh, these are all instrumental tunes that he wrote on the road while we were playing leading up to moving to Nashville. It's a great album. And on there are two of Alison Krause's tunes and Twin Fiddles with Andrea Zahn and Tim Stafford on guitar. And it is just... Uh, some really great sort of, you know, lost treasures out there of uh, great uh, bluegrass instrumentals. Really good stuff. And uh, so we kind of cross-pollinated on some of those things, you know. What do you think about working some of the contests helped you uh, develop as a picker and an artist? Well, where I came from, that's that's kind of the way the festivals were, were um, geared. Okay. So... Uh, in Southern California, we would go to festivals that would be like a regular bluegrass festival. You just have uh, maybe uh, two, three days of lineups, of, and there'd be like one touring act that would come through to be the headliner, like Jim and Jesse or Bill Monroe or whoever. And then uh, there might be a flat picking contest involved in that during the during the week uh, weekend. Whereas in Arizona, the festivals that we used to go to, they were all based on on the picking contests. And they would hire that one headliner band, and they would be the um, the judges for the contests and everything. So you'd have bluegrass banjo, old-time banjo, mandolin, uh, bluegrass band, old-time string band. And then the, all the possible combos. All these yeah. different categories. And then there would be the fiddle contest, and the fiddle contest was completely separate because that had to be a sanctioned old-time fiddle convention union certified whatever that is yeah Yeah, Yeah, there's an organization you know that time so the judges were sanctioned judges by the old-time fiddle association i don't know if it still exists that way or not in the fiddle contest world but anyway that's what we did and um that's kind of how we got started so it was kind of interesting just a different way to come up you know but uh it really want made me want to go to more bluegrass festivals you know and that kind of thing so it really helped my interest i think hold my interest and because I was constantly learning repertoire and tunes to play in these contests and stuff. Uh, what do you think about the contest model versus just jamming in a parking lot all weekend with your buddies? Uh, help help sharpen you and uh, and mold you into a professional. Well, the difference is that it's a lot less expensive for those festivals to be put on. So in Arizona, it's all snowbirds, people in their RVs, and so they don't want to spend any money on anything if they can. Now, free is best, but if you could go to a music festival, park your rig, and maybe go to hear the entertainment of the weekend for, uh, um, you know, half of what it would cost maybe or less to go to a real sort of major festival, I think that's attractive to people that are in RVs and that kind of thing. So that, that, that's kind of the, cause the crowd that you see is a lot of snowbird-type people in the wintertime, uh, in the fall. But in the, in the summertime, um, maybe not so much, but I don't know. Uh, that's, there's an economic part of it that's probably, you know, vi- makes it viable. What was the the best and what was the worst experience on being judged in a contest like that? <laughs> well, I can tell you about being a judge, and uh, um, 
Uh, I remember one time, I've known Chris Staley since he was like seven years old or eight, and uh, he used to come over to this festival in Arizona and compete, and I think he was about nine. And uh, we're all in this trailer secluded, we're listening to the players by number, and uh, they're announced by number. And uh, so this uh, contestant gets up and plays, a, you know, just incredibly fantastic mandolin tune and just sounds incredible and the place goes absolutely crazy and then all of a sudden you hear this little small voice go thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) and it was just a dead giveaway that was chris Thiele at nine years old smoked everybody in the contest you know dead giveaway how often have you been a judge in some of those contests like that uh just a few times here and there you know do you think that having been on the other side as a contestant in a lot of those contests helped you better uh, as your role as a judge i don't know it's hard to be a judge really of any kind you know is it uh, harder judging or being judged in those contests well you know there's a there's a method to it because you have to you have all these uh, sort of uh, criteria that you judge on you know whether it's a uh, difficulty of tune and uh, showmanship and entertainment value or whatever whatever they are um and so but you have to find somewhere in there say you have uh 20 contestants it's hard from the very beginning to sort of set what your standard is and so as a contestant you always want to draw a late number because all of the criteria has been established as it's going along and uh so you can you have a chance of getting a higher score if you if you if you uh play later in the contest than if you play early where uh, they may not be so generous yeah. uh, because they're trying to hold off to sort of start their, you know, their level of, uh, of ability or yeah. whatever, sort of set a standard from where they base it off of. So, Well, and then going later, you see what you're up against, and you can also see, okay, a lot of bands, you know, we're good in one area, but in our opinion, we're lower in another area. Right. Maybe we can kind of find points that way. You know, maybe they didn't have the showmanship aspect, so right. Maybe if we and, and you know, as a band, as a contestant, there's a lot of strategy too. I mean, we used to come compete here at Spigma, and you know, there'd be all this talk about what, what songs. You know, got to have what songs, and it finally it dawned on us: we don't need to worry about what the song is. We just need to do what we do best. So, what are the three things that we do best at this point and let's put that out there and that's what we decided to do and it really it worked that way because the things that we were the most together on and played the the best uh we just put out there forward we didn't save anything we just you know these are the top three and then the next top three and then the next top three or whatever kind of just worked down from there yeah yeah so in the moment but yeah there's a lot of strategy you know trying to figure out you know, play this. So we should do the slow one first. Should we do that second? You know, all those kind of things. So, well, what are some what are some other uh, pointers or tips for anybody that uh, are are in the contest uh, in the contest scene? Because I know in some parts of the country it's a bigger deal than others. Well, the, the 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 thing is to concentrate on your strengths. Don't worry about what you're not as good at. You know, forget about it. Go towards your strengths. So, in my case, as a banjo contestant. You know, in my back in in the day, I always could tell the other I could tell what the other players were going to play just by hearing them play. I would know that somebody was going to be a particularly melodic style player, or so a little jazzier, or whatever. And so when I I when I would hear that, and I would I would go completely the opposite direction and just play as simple simple straight with good timing, 
and nine times out of ten, I'd end up beating the guy who was really going for something complicated. Because there's a lot more chance for error in something like that. Totally. You know? Where if you can stick to the taste, tone, timing, yeah. you know, that, that goes, a, and goes again, a long way. And again, as a judge, you know, oh, he made a little muff right there. So how does that affect everything? And how is that against the last guy and the next guy that's coming up? You know, so if you can play something simple, straight, and with great timing, um, you don't have any, they don't have anything to, to, um, to, to mark complain off, about or yeah. mark off on your score, yeah. you know. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. What about being a banjo player helped you be a better bass player down the line? Well, more than anything is just learning all the repertoire that you learn as a, as a lead musician, whether you play the mandolin, guitar, or banjo, or fiddle. You know, you spend most of the time learning how to play solos to vocal tunes, instrumental tunes, uh, all kinds of musical pieces that you play with other people and compete. So I was just constantly, you know, learning repertoire. So when you go to the bass, you know how all these songs go. Man, I don't know how to play the bass yet, but you're, you're, you kind of know where the changes are and, 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 you know, in a lot of bluegrass, there's a lot of nuance down in there in the way that chords change or the way you play a chord uh, and the way you play against a chord change on the bass. And so those are little things that you, you learn when you're learning the tune, you know, and it just carries over. So a lot of it was carrying over from learning all that stuff. So so learning how much the tunes were, were structured, laid out, how all the parts work together. Yeah. Um, by being a lead instrument, you probably paid more attention to that, whereas some people that coming in just as a bass player just well, well, kind of yeah, maybe oversimplified a little bit. Well, and, you're learning that, but you're really learning the large number of songs. Yeah. You know, you're listening and learning a break to, or if you're playing in a band, you're learning all these breaks. So really, it's the quantity that you're that you're taking in. You know, um, it's hard, I would say, to start just as a bass player having not played any other instrument or learned a. Um, a list of song, you know, some some form of repertoire on another instrument it can be done. Of course, there are bass players that just play the bass, but um, you know, I think playing another instrument just gave me a head start. Yeah. You know, all I had to really do is kind of refine how to play the bass, which is a whole other um, thing than playing a banjo with picks and a light strings and that kind of thing. What well, what are some of the the most difficult aspects of of playing the bass in, in bluegrass music specifically? Well, for me, uh, it's a couple things. One, it's a very physical instrument. So after years of playing the bass, I have all these ailments that, unfortunately, I think everybody gets as they get yeah. older. <laughs> you know, in my hands, I've had all kinds of tennis elbow, shoulder problems, 
and they kind of work themselves out. You work through them. I don't really have any blisters or anything because my calluses are pretty much stay intact all the time because I play so much. But um, so that part of it, the physical part of it, you know, is just it, it's hard on you. It's hard to switch back to banjo from playing the bass because my hands are just like you know claws. And, uh, you know, the de- there's a f- lot of finesse that goes into playing the banjo and a touch, you know, you have to have. And it's very different than the finesse and <laughs> the touch of playing bluegrass bass, you know. Um, but also, you know, just in playing the bass and um, being around other recording musicians, you kind of learn about simplicity and sort of supporting a song and, and that kind of thing, leading a singer, those those sorts of things. They're not really teachable. You know, they just come from experience. Um, there's a lot of bass players that like to play the lowest note at all times and keep the bass in the lowest registers for that extra bottom thump, you know. But that's not always the best place to play, you know. I like to move up and down on the register of the bass with the, with the way the melody moves. So if the melody goes up, then I would go up to a higher register with it and down with it when it goes back down, that kind of thing. Just try to follow it and support it kind of that way in a harmonic sense. But um, I don't know, you know. Well, who who were some of uh, your favorite bluegrass bass players that, that you try to emulate or try to adapt some stylistically? Well, I would say um, my biggest influence is Roy Husky Jr. just because he was so – preeminent and uh, and prevalent when I was coming up in the 80s he was on everything you know and he was uh, played on all the records and he played on all the TV shows and so even before I got to Nashville I, of course I knew who he was so he was you know the, the most high profile most visible for, yeah. for you oh, yeah. growing up okay as far as you know then then of course there's people like Mark Schatz was uh, playing with Tony Rice when I was coming up and before that had played with uh, um, a couple bands with Bela Fleck and uh, so he was kind of a preeminent influence in the early days. Uh, of course, Todd Phillips on those Bluegrass album band records. Uh, you know, I learned all those, learned from all those. And and um, uh, and then, you know, when I got to Nashville, um, I started learning a lot more about, you know, sort of the Nashville bass players of yesteryear that played on all of the recordings probably over the course of 50 years here in this town. And it all boiled down to about five bass players, you know. Of course, the King Daddy being uh, Bob Moore. Yeah. He probably played on more records than anybody. I'd say it's a pretty Um, fair assessment. But he couldn't do it all, so there had to be other bass players. You know, Ernie Newton was a guy who was around in the 40s, actually. Uh, He came from uh, um, Les Paul and Mary Ford. So he was more of a, I, I would say, maybe a schooled bass player. I don't really know much about him, but he's the guy, first guy to introduce the um, the brush and drum, of, you know, oh, really? snare effect yeah, on the yeah. on the bass. And um, and then Lightning Chance was another bass player and also a Grand Ole Opry sort of personality and comedian um, that also did session work, and he also did the brush work as well on the bass. And... Uh, and then, of course, Joe Zinkin is another one who probably recorded nearly as much as Bob Moore. Really? And uh, he he started in the 30s uh, playing on riverboats. So his musical background was really diverse, and he came to Nashville to play with the Delmore Brothers and then went to work for Acuff in the 40s, in the war years, I guess, and then basically established himself as a 
Opry staff bass player and, and uh, you know, an A-team bass guy. And there's a lot of records out there that you can listen to, and you'll go, that's Bob Moore playing the bass. And then if you go dig up the session info and you look, it'll say Joe Zinkin on it, especially Ray Price records, a lot of Ray really? Price shuffles. Really? Uh, they both played a, on a lot of them. And so a lot of times it's, it's you, when you think it's one, it's the other. You mentioned the Delmore Brothers. I'm a huge Delmore fan, so I'll have to go back and look some of the credits on some of their, uh, their. I'm guessing, probably the 30s stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 1938, I think he came here to play with the Delmores. I don't know if they recorded with him or not. Okay. Don't know anything about it. I just happened to know that because I was asking um, Kent Blanton about it because he's got Joe Zinkin's old bass, and he really knows the history. I don't know much about those guys' history other than what they did here in Nashville. You know, but how they got here and that kind of stuff. So, uh, bass players, particularly in this town, are, are almost like steel players. They're kind of like a fraternity almost. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. Well, I, I also want to mention Junior Husky, Roy's dad. Yeah. Um, you know, he was here all through the, I guess, in the fifties and sixties. Came here to play with the Leuven Brothers, I believe, from Knoxville. And um, now he's another one that just, you know, amazing, uh, natural talent. And uh, and then the guy that came after all those guys was Henry Strzelecki, and he played electric and upright through the '70s. And and, um, and then Junior passed away fairly young in the early '70s. So that's when Roy was a teenager, and um, and Benny Martin actually was the one that got Roy to start playing and got him his first gig on the Opry when he was like 16. Wow! Playing with Del Wood, and uh, he used to drive Benny Martin around. Uh, he became Benny's driver. After his dad passed away, I'm sure that's a job right there. <laughs> and that's where he, that's where he got his love for big cars because Benny always had big Cadillacs and Roy would drive him around these Cadillacs. Did you ever get to spend any time around Benny Martin? Yeah, I made two records with Benny. Really? And uh, he used to come to all of our jam sessions and hang out, and he was an interesting character. He seems like it, the the big tiger. Yeah, he'd done it all <laughs> in excess. <laughs> He had the greatest stories. I mean, if you've ever seen this Tim Burton movie called The Big Fish, uh, when I saw it, all I could think of was Benny Martin uh, because it's a story about a traveling salesman who has all of these stories that he tells not only for motivation and inspiration in his sales pitches, but these are the tales of his travels. But over the years, they take on these unbelievable uh, twists and turns and the stories develop and this and that and the movie's about his son coming to back to hear the stories one more time that he got so tired of hearing before, but now that his dad is ill and on his way out, he wants to hear the stories again. So he, they recreate all the stories in the movie. And then at the end of the movie, all of the people in these stories come to this guy's funeral. Wow. And it's like they really were. True. These, these yeah. people really did exist, you know. Wow. Now, the story may take on a life of its own, but all the people he was talking about, they all showed up, you know. And uh, that's what I, I thought about with Benny Martin. You know, he was just uh, these stories that he would tell. You know, he told me one time that he was he and Roy pulled into a gas station and uh, he, he opened the door of the car and he had a pistol in his pocket and it fell out. Pistol goes off. And a lady inside the gas station falls on the ground. So Benny gets back in the car. He says, step on it, Roy. And they take off out of there, and he finally got pulled over by some cops somewhere down the line, down the road somewhere. And the first thing Benny says to the police officer, she said, did, did I kill her? 
And the police officer said, no, he just shot the heel off of her foot, <laughs> off of her shoe. <laughs> and I think that's just like, you know, only Benny Martin could have a story like that. So What, what about bluegrass music makes it almost uh, so easy to develop these larger-than-life characters with these well, that's zany the, personalities that's and the stories? That's the term right there, characters. You know, this landscape of this music is just filled with characters and that historically it always has been from somebody as stoic as bill monroe a real character to somebody as nutty and crazy as uh, jimmy martin you know and but all of them are have this like highly you know passionate level for this music that is beyond it you know you can you know your average music fan yeah. they're super passionate about it and they don't let anything get in the way of that but also some people, you know, back in the old, early days, especially of bluegrass, you think about all those personalities, you know, and how competitive they all were because they were all competing for their part of a very small piece of the pie after Elvis Presley, you know, and after they got shoved out into the pastures for their own, you know, festivals and stuff instead of being um, – competitive on radio and in performance and that kind of thing with country acts you know they just got splintered off so that pie got smaller and all of a sudden they had to really compete against each other and so when you hear stories about sort of the older generation you know they they um they're a lot more um what's the word uh extroverted is you know they want to stand out in the crowd you know you know most people they want to they want to blend in they don't want to stand out they just want to blend in but back then those guys would do anything to stand out of the crowd you know and you can see it in the pictures you know jimmy martin was just was a classic you know he just the way that he dressed you would never forget that guy if you ever saw him on stage i mean who would who would the, forget the, him? The checkered, the checkered coats and the, yeah. the hat cocked sideways charlie cushman told me that checkered hat he bought uh, when Charlie Cushman was with him, he said he bought it at Loretta Lynn's Western store, and he said it's a ladies' rodeo hat. <laughs> now I've heard a uh, um, Steve Sutton before talk about watching Jimmy put that hat on. Yeah, right. And it you know he always wore it crooked, but he'd hold it straight above yeah, his head, right. and then crook his head and put it up into the hat. So he wouldn't put the hat on and then you know cock it like most people would. He did it the opposite. He cocked right. his head and put the hat on straight. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. So whether they knew it or not, that they had kind of, whether intentionally or unintentionally, attached their personality to their brand and to their right, yeah. their, their music and their band. They were really branding themselves and not really knowing what it was called at that time. But now it's called branding. You know, there's such a separation of the sound and the style and the personality of all those that that generation of this music. You know, now it gets a little more homogenous. You yeah. know. Well, and, and even music spreads out in different directions. And you mentioned like Jimmy's clothes, you know, the, the clothing that, that the, the artists wore was a great way to differentiate it. You know, um, when the Newgrass Revival or the Seldom Scene would show up wearing T-shirt and jeans, you knew, OK, right. they're going to be a little more urban, a little more contemporary. Um, and even if you look at someone like Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, a lot of his shifts in his music have come with shifts in the style of dress as well. Right. But when you look at some of these personalities, some of them may not have been clothing driven. You've got somebody like Harley Gabbard. His personality <laughs> was his brand. Same thing with right. someone like Benny Martin. Right. Know? Yeah. 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 You're right. Uh, yeah. It's um, 
everybody had it a little differently, you know, uh, the fashion sense and that sort of thing. But there's always been people that buck the trend too, you know. Uh, they like the Wrecking Crew, you know. They got their name, the 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 Los Angeles um, sort of studio gang, yeah. you know, sort of like the A Team of Nashville, but the '60s sort of A Team of uh, Los Angeles recording. Yeah. But they got their name Wrecking Crew because it, before their era was the it was all uh, you know white shirt and tie session musicians, and you would show up with a tie to record and be on a session, and then those guys would come in for late night sessions and they'd be wearing t-shirts and jeans. And that's what they said. Here comes the wrecking crew. You know, these guys are, and then the next thing, you know, they just take over Glenn and, Campbell and all those dudes yeah, becomes like the yeah. next, becomes the next thing as it's, you know, transitions from the next generation. So do you, on the, on the, on the personalities and the characters in this business, do you think that this music attracts the eccentric or do you think that it produces, <laughs> produces and makes people more? It eccentric? certainly allows a certain amount of it. You yeah, uh, I mean, you can just look out in the hallways at Spigma here. Um, you, you'll see a lot of different types of characters, yeah. and and because uh, this is something that that I've had conversations with before. Like, are they just a, a, attracted to this music, or do we just produce them? Well, it's I just mean, a funny thing, you know. Uh, one time I was giving this bass workshop, uh, and one of the ladies in the workshop, it was just like a, a one day, you know, two hour workshop or something, and and a festival. And she had this big bushy foxtail that hung off one of the tuners of her bass. So basically, if you were playing the bass, this big foxtail would be hanging on your forearm, you know, while you were playing, like a big, like a big feather duster or something. <laughs> and so, you know, being inquisitive as always, I said, uh, "What's the significance of this tail on your uh, bass?" Here, and she goes, "Are you saying you don't like my foxtail?" I said, no, I didn't say that. I said, I didn't know it was a foxtail, so I've learned something. I said, but why is it hanging off your base? And uh, she goes, what, you don't like it? And I said, no, but I said, I will say this. I said, if it was on my base, it would drive me crazy, and I would have to take it off to play the base. I said, I don't know how you deal with it, you know, on your arm or whatever. And uh, she just thought I didn't like it, but I was just trying to find out. You know, but it's just one of those it, things. Like so, I'm gonna hang that on. I'm gonna hang that on my base. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's uh, your rearview mirror. Just right. Yeah, maybe so, you could start hanging like air fresheners on your base. You know, people you know. <laughs> just do. You know, they just do things, and it's just funny sometimes. You step back and look, and you go, "Okay, well, you know, it's like a, a, a MCs of bluegrass festivals. That's like a whole subculture of bluegrass. The MCs, and uh, you know, generally, uh, MCs uh, always have get-ups. Like they have their own sort of costume. Uh, preferences that they wear, you know, uh, stand out from the band, I guess, or whatever. But the, you know, the MC subculture is another funny thing that's, to look at. That's great. I never really thought about that because you get the Bill Knowlton that always wears the the, yeah. the the pajama pants and the big straw hat. You know, <laughs> Sam Jackson just about always has the bibbed overalls. He's gone tie dye on. on us, yeah. Yeah, Tommy Tommy Lamb's always got the the, the checkered hats. Um, there was a guy, and it might have been was it? Uh, Oh, uh, what's the bass player from Louisville? Mike uh, plays with Larry Cordell. Um, I think his dad was an MC, and he would always wear sort of the ragtime era, you know, the ruffled shirts and the in uh, a top hat and the, you know the gartered uh, sleeves and and uh, that's that kind of stuff uh, in a you know maybe a some kind of tail coat or whatever. Now the the craziest this wasn't at a bluegrass event, but um Mumford and Sons hosts these little festivals and the MC at, at that festival, this is a look that I MC some festivals, but I don't think I'm gonna be adopting this style anytime soon. He uh MC'd the event 
um, shirtless with a uh, a denim vest, <laughs> unbuttoned, shirtless with an unbuttoned denim yeah. vest. Um, That'll get people's like, attention. It definitely got you. And, and oh, and I'm leaving out that he was probably about a uh, solid three twenty, three thirty, <laughs> big red chest hair. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, hey, more t- more power to you, bro. But I think that that's a fashion trend. I'm, See, I'm completely it, it, fine it with just, skipping a genre. <laughs> for some reason, some strange reason, it just uh, it allows it and it nurtures it. <laughs> yeah. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com. Code Bluegrass. And now back to Walls of Time. One misconception about bluegrass is that there is a a lack of diversity. But I see all sorts of different people from different backgrounds. Um, you know, maybe there's some areas that, that aren't as represented as in, as in others. But I see a wide variety of people um, that come from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures that are at this music. I mean... It, at well, many events, you know, you'll see people from all over the world. Um, what what about this music? Do you think uh, has such an appeal that, that they can draw from so many different people groups? Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, diversity is a it's, it's a, such a big word these days. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people in general are, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're all by nature a little bit tribal. So, you know, if there's things that we're interested in, uh. You know, they, you come together around this one thing. And now that this music, the music side of it is diverse. Yes. So that's what's pulling in a lot of people, too, because it's all sort of connected. Yeah. Um, I first went to Japan when I was 19 years old and couldn't believe the the enthusiasm for bluegrass over there. And, of course, bluegrass had been going there 20 years before I ever got there. But um, it was uh, it was astounding to see that enthusiasm for it, you know, and the love for it. Um, if you've ever read any of the uh, Japanese uh, translations on some of those Stanley Brothers records, you know they they translate the lyrics and everything. You know, and uh, there's a few mistakes here and there, but they're always you know good humor. Um, as a as a 19 year old getting to go to Japan and see all these people that that like the same kind of music you did, well, how did that impact you, or how did that change your perception about people around the world in different cultures? Well, that was my first trip out of the country, except for going to Canada. And I went with Bob Paisley, Bob and Dan oh, Paisley. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, there was a guy over there who had been doing some uh, concert tours. He had Newgrass Revival, Hot Rise, I'm fairly sure Nashville Bluegrass Band went over. Uh, this would have been around uh, 84 is when I went. And uh, uh, it was interesting. You know, uh, um, my dad was really 
proud that I was going to go to Japan, you know, because he had been there in the Navy and stuff. He loved Japan. We had, you know, Sansui stereos and uh, a lot of Japanese electronics and stuff growing up. My dad was a photographer, you know, amateur photographer, always had Nikon cameras. And and uh, so he said, you want to make sure you get a camera while you're over there, you know. So I did buy a, a Nikon camera there. Um, but it was interesting going with them because um, we went without a bass player. And the plan was that Dan was going to play the bass. And the very first thing we did when we got there, we got some guy to play the bass with us, Japanese guy. And he played the rest of the tour. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they said, we need to have you just play bass with us the rest of the tour. And uh, then then we had the two guitars, you know, because I didn't think Dan was going to – Dan probably, you know – he would have blistered out after about the third night, probably. At the, oh, <laughs> if, he'd had to, yeah. if he'd had to play for ten <laughs> nights in a row in Japan on the bass, you know, he could, not that he couldn't play, he just didn't play the bass all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, to to go that long of a stretch yeah. uh, every night. So that was yeah. kind of a lifesaver for him. But um, you know, I kind of got to be uh, uh, hang out with the Japanese guys a lot because um, I was interested in the food culture, all that kind of stuff. And uh, those other guys, they they weren't really too interested in the food part of it, you know. Um, not everybody is as adventurous as others, you know. It just kind of depends. But I was, you know, wanting to try everything and experience it all, you know. And so that part, I just I loved it. I had a great time. And then I went back, like, uh, probably almost 10 years later, we went back with the Del McCurry Band. When it first started with Del, maybe I was with him maybe two years, we went over and uh, – did that and then I had a band here called the Sidemen, which was a, a Station Inn band that we played every Tuesday night for 16 years at the Station Inn. And uh, we did a record for a Japanese record label, Red Clay Records, oh, really? Toshio Watanabe. And uh, they brought us over for a 10 day trip over there as well. Wow. And that was a fun one. We had. <laughs> That was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> what are some of the most interesting places that bluegrass music has taken you? Well, almost all of them. You know, uh, if it weren't for bluegrass music, there's a lot of places I would have never gotten to. You know, um, with Dell, we we went over to um, Ireland and um, we did uh, a couple trips to Switzerland. There's a big country music festival that runs for like six months in the wintertime in Switzerland. Yeah. And the guy that does the festival there, he does a couple of weekends where he has bluegrass. He kind of mixes it up. Every weekend is something different. It's cool. this ongoing uh, music festival, mostly country music. Country music's huge in Switzerland. They have the songwriter festivals there, and they have uh, um, all kinds of, of uh, country music festivals. And uh, But... Uh, you know, our Weary Hearts band actually did a, a 30 day tour of uh, all over Europe, uh, Switzerland, wow. Germany, Italy, Holland. Uh, I don't think we made a dime. I don't know if we made, I might have made $300 by the time <laughs> it was no- all said and done. Made nothing but memories, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you're able to do that when you don't have any overhead and you're in your 20s. Oh, uh, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, uh, and then later on, uh, when we played, toured with Steve Earle, we did a European tour with Steve. And with him, we went to a lot of places we'd never would have played. You know, like we played in Amsterdam at the Paradise Theater, Paradise, Paradiso Theater. Um, we played in Hamburg at, a, at some club where the Beatles played. Uh, was it the Star Club? 
I don't know. I don't. I don't. Know. I think Jerry. I think I've heard. A, I've heard a live record of Jerry Lee Lewis. I think it was yeah, the yeah, Star yeah. Club, and it was in it was in Hamburg, Germany. Uh-huh. So that's what. That's the only reason I ask. That's about the only place I know in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the name of the club off that Jerry Lee record. Uh-huh. But we played all over Brussels, uh, Paris. Went to Paris with Dell. That was a fun one. <laughs> Had a little too much wine in Paris. <laughs> I, I'm sure watching Del McCurry try to speak French was probably a, a unique sight. Well, just, uh, you know, I don't know. When you go to the Louvre, you know, you you got to have to go. It's like obligatory. You got to go see the Mona Lisa and yeah. this and that, you know. So I, I came up with this idea that, you know, when somebody says, uh, you know, did, did you see the Mona Lisa when you were in Paris? I said, absolutely. But I said, the one I remember more than anything is the, is the painting next to the Mona Lisa, which nobody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> It's like that's the worst gig in Paris is having the painting next to the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Nobody remembers that one. But uh, it, it, I'll tell you a funny story. We were on the, we took a train from uh, Paris to Zurich, and uh, we're sort of in this first class section of this train, and it's very comfortable. It's like riding on a big roomy airplane, you know. And there's a a guy sitting right behind Dell and Jean, uh, or right in front of him, and uh, right in front of them. And so when we get into Switzerland, these Swiss guards get on the train with us, and they're like tough hombres, man. They don't say anything. They just want to look at your passport, and, and they're riding to the next stop on the train. And this guy that's sitting in front of them has no passport. He doesn't speak any English. Uh, they're trying to speak to him. He might have been a Middle Eastern guy. Anyway, next thing I know, they take him off to this uh, little area in the front of the rail car where I had, I had my base with me in a big, giant sarcophagus case. And uh, they weren't expecting to see that when they went in there. But uh, <laughs> anyway, they went and interrogated that guy. And they went, and two other uh, Swiss guard guys were going through the seats and trying to go through this guy's stuff while they were interrogating him. And then they just walked him off the train at the next station. And that was the end, that was the end of that episode. <laughs> wow. <laughs> never saw him again. <laughs> but He was never heard from again. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're all sitting on the train with a you know, deer in the headlights look like. Wow, we're in it now. <laughs> well, what are some of the uh, any other interesting stories that where uh, you or someone you're traveling with had kind of culture shock going to all these different countries? Well, you know, culture shock is subjective and objective. <laughs> <laughs> some people get sh- shocked worse than others. <laughs> um, right before I went to work for Dell, I, I, I went to Japan for three months. And um, I had a friend at... Uh, he was from uh, Houston, Texas, and he he had a gig. Uh, um, uh, high, con- he had a contract with the this place. It was like a fisherman's wharf kind of place, and uh, they had these restaurants, and everything was uh, um, staffed by uh, college kids from Michigan. And so he had the contract for the band, and he would bring a bluegrass band over there, and they played nine months at this place, 16 days on. Every day you'd play four 30-minute sets. And then he did this for nine months. And uh, so I got called in to do it after uh, this band had been over there for six months. And the banjo player quit. And so I ended up going over there, uh, taking his place for three months and living in Japan. And, and uh, you know, that was just such a crazy, unique experience, uh, especially in some just sort of um, remote area of Japan. Yeah, not like in the big city or anything like no, that. No, yeah. uh-uh. And, uh, I mean, we had a fairly large metropolitan area near us, but, um, you know, had a bike and a rail pass and all this kind of stuff that the company provided for you and an apartment. 
And uh, it was really neat to get to know people on sort of a local level, you know. We met this guy. He was a, he was a rice broker. And, but he was also a musician who had a, a Hawaiian music was really big there, I guess, in the 40s and 50s. And so all of his college buddies uh, played, uh, had a Hawaiian band. And uh, they all had these beautiful vintage Gibson instruments that they'd bought back in the 40s, you know, like wow. steels and archtop guitars and uh, just the sweetest people. And uh, we would go see them play and hang out with them. And, and uh, it was really a lot of fun and really got a taste of the culture there. You know, uh, this guy raised prize koi fish that he would, com- I guess they, they compete uh, much like, you know, people do with even with goats here, you know, whatever yeah. it's like. Like 4-H it, or something. Right, yeah, yeah, koi for fish. koi. And I asked him one time, you know, I said, what, what makes a good koi fish? He goes, good koi, dead koi. Ho, ho, ho. He goes, <laughs> he goes, it's not worth all the money I spend to make them look good, you know. <laughs> That's funny. Just like any hobby, you can spend as much as you want, you know. And he spent a lot on koi, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I don't know about culture shock, you know. Uh the worst thing that could ever happen is just, you know, biting into something that you don't want to eat. You know, that's probably the, what's the, the what's biggest the, fear of any anything, you know. Did, did you ever get anything that was uh, less oh, pleasant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the strangest thing that you ever ate, whether intentionally or well, accidentally? I don't know what it would be. But in Japan, you can get your, you know, you bite your, you sink your teeth into something and you go, oh. You don't know if it's <laughs> eel or, or what, but yeah. you just didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. It's... uh there's some strong flavors over there. But, you know, you have to try everything so that you can find out what you do like. Oh, you know, totally. That kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's – uh, you get over there to Asia, it's pretty amazing what they eat. <laughs> yeah. It's not soup, beans, and cornbread. Not a lot I, of waste. I know that. I've never been over there. But. Yeah. <laughs> Part one of a two-part interview with Mike Bubb, bass player extraordinaire. He has been in bluegrass for the past few decades. And hearing how his journey started from a contest picker to his time with the Weary Hearts and even traveling internationally was very interesting. Uh, we recorded this episode backstage at Spigma in Nashville, Tennessee. You could really feel the bluegrass in the air at Spigma. Yeah, Mike's a, a cool guy. You know, he's been around the scene for you know a good many years as you can uh, hear by his history there part of some very uh, important groups through the years starting with this uh, episode you're getting to the little bit of history of Mike and him coming up uh, a southwestern bluegrass guy which is really cool I don't think we've had anybody from that area so far on the podcast uh, or maybe for the whole season anybody from that area but it's great to hear um, a couple things from Mike that I thought were really cool you know if you're a bluegrass fan and, uh, you know, maybe you've listened to a lot of contemporary bluegrass or a lot of really traditional bluegrass, but there's a whole era of uh, groups and some of the which he was in or were contemporaries of him, you know, he's talking about, or of groups of he was in, uh, you know, we're talking about um, uh, the Weary Hearts and then uh, early uh, Allison Krauss configurations and Dusty Miller and those are really cool and key uh, groups that uh, were of a certain era in bluegrass. So if you haven't heard of some of those, 
Uh, check them out. We're going to put them, some of those folks on our Spotify playlist as well. Nowadays, if a group like the Weary Hearts came about, they'd be known as an all-star group because each one of those individuals went on to be household names in bluegrass. Same thing with the band Dusty Miller. Uh, several members from both of those bands came to join Allison Krauss in Union Station when she became a sensation a Crossroots music. And it's really interesting to hear about how exciting of a time that was because before they uh, were pickers extraordinaire and everyone knew who they were, they were just uh, a bunch of young kids that loved picking bluegrass and loved being around the scene. Yeah, and grew up in the uh, competition scene. And I think that's an interesting piece of the music culture. If you're not really familiar with bluegrass and how it's been preserved and the uh, different communities and cultures from which it's sprung out of that's a really cool aspect of it you know we talk about competition and how so many of these players learn the discipline learn the repertoire uh, learn sort of uh, the style of music the school of music uh, in competitions and a lot of folks in fiddle camps and then they created their own style and own identity by going on into joining bands and working and playing a lot with those bands. So I think, you know, overall, it's just a really good aspect of uh, this particular kind of music culture to hear about um, how Mike came through that process. It's a real subculture of bluegrass is that contest scene. Nowadays, uh, rising stars is Daniel Amick with the band High Fidelity, Ivy Phillips, who she plays a lot in Nashville with the Trailblazers some, Ainsley that plays with Carolina Blue, great fiddler. They kind of were steeped in that contest scene in that realm. And it really, I think, has produced quite a few pickers because the rigorous schedule, the attention to detail. And you know, I'm not a picker, you know, guilty as charged. People ask me all the time. I'm not a picker. So it's a very interesting learning more about that contest scene. It's one of the subculture of the bluegrass festival scene that uh, is really interesting and has produced some top-notch pickers even today. The cross-section of cultures we get to see in this episode, Japan, where Mike worked playing uh, banjo for three months. You know, who 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 else but Mike Bubb would have a gig playing the banjo in Japan for three months? Right. We even had a throwback to the Danny Paisley episode uh, because he even got to travel internationally with Bob Paisley in the Southern Grass for a little while as well. Yeah, I think it's great. Mike's obviously an adventurer, and uh, it's what sometimes you got to be in this world of being a, a traveling troubadour musician, of which... Mike is a consummate one. You mentioned uh, adventure. His adventures with the Delma Curry Band are many, and we tackle those in uh, part two of our episode with Mike Bubb here on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. You mentioned our Spotify playlist. Uh, Why don't you tell folks about uh, how they can examine some of this music that we have uh, been referring to and mentioning in each of our episodes? Yes, on our social media pages on Walls of Time podcast on Facebook and on Twitter. We're putting links to our Spotify playlists, and we're making playlists for each episode that showcase the groups that some of these artists are mentioning, some of the songs, some of the artists that are influencing the people we're interviewing. Uh, So it's a great way to expand your bluegrass music knowledge base by going to Spotify and following Walls of Time on Spotify or following the links through our social media pages over there. You can also listen to this entire podcast on Spotify if you are not already. Also, 
on Apple Podcasts. As you mentioned, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. We're now on Stitcher, so that's super exciting. So wherever you uh, like to enjoy listening to podcasts, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. You can find more information on the web wallsoftimepodcast.com We'll be back next time with part two of our conversation with Mike Bubb. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.